Hey, good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday morning, and everyone's around the table except for Jack. He's out in Kansas somewhere doing who knows what. But um, <laughs> he's, he's not in Kansas anymore. anymore. No, he's not. He's doing some oh, kind of like a, ACSI um, accreditation. Yeah, yeah, more on accreditation. That's the nightmare that never goes away. I'll just tell you that right now. You know. Yes. Um, how the gospel enables and empowers sexual purity. Where'd you find this, Mike? Uh, I was doing some investigating, and the article we were going to do fell through, just wasn't substantial enough background, and Doc just happened to email me this article, and I was like, read it, and I'm like, good timing, so I think it's a good topic for uh, our church, because for younger people, well, not even just younger people, but uh, sexual purity is a challenge, and we need to address it, not ignore it. Yeah, there's a small footnote that says... Adapted from Hope and Holiness by John Fonville, published by Moody Publishers, the year 2022, used by permission. All right, let's get started. All right, so growing up in a church-going family, Kate had been taught that maintaining her sexual purity for marriage was of utmost importance. She had been taught many rules and regulations, but without being given any reasons for them. Having sex outside of marriage was sin, but she didn't really know why. And she got a little help from her, and she got little help from her mom or and dad either by teaching or example. Entering puberty in the middle school years, Kate's interest in sex was growing through what she saw on television, discussions with her friends, and her own natural curiosity. Often, Kate said later, I felt ashamed and unsure what to do with these thoughts, except to push them aside and move on. I was so sure that they were sinful. As she entered high school, these norms. These normal thoughts and desires turned into temptations. At times, I was ashamed to even like a boy or to think he was attractive because my legalistic background told me that was sinful, Kate recalled. Eventually, however, she yielded almost daily to both fornication and addiction to pornography. Such habitual sins made her doubt her salvation and left her feeling isolated from her sisters, who seemingly didn't struggle with things. Throughout her teenage years and into her early 20s, she facilitated vacillated between living a life of godliness and falling back into sin. She pressured herself, made vows, and prayed, repeatedly asking God to make her obedient and rid her of her sexual sin, all to no avail. Human effort in a moral cause was not enough. Slowly, Kate was coming to the realization that the answer to her sexual struggles was not in herself, but in someone, uppercase someone else. She moved to a gospel-centered church and began unlearning the legalistic lessons from her youth, replacing them with a new understanding of the gospel to transform her from the inside out. It is often said, it is not what you know that can hurt you, it's what you don't. Kate didn't know the key to sexual freedom and as a result lived in sexual bondage for many years. She is far from the first Christian to do so. Enter the Corinthians, who were a theological and moral mess. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-20, Paul reveals that their problem is that they didn't really know the gospel and its implications for their sexual behavior. Paul asks, do you not know? Ten times in this letter, four of which appear in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. His question in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-20 are intended to draw the Corinthians' attention to the gospel and its implications for living a morally pure life that should have been self-evident and unavoidable. But since this wasn't the case, Paul reintroduces the gospel as the remedy. 
His heavy emphasis on the gospel must not be understood to be an exclusive emphasis, thus neglecting the role of the law. Paul has weaved together a tapestry of law and gospel because his pastoral strategy for liberating a heart from deep and complex enslavement to sexual sin is through the wise application of both the law, to warn and direct, and the gospel, to refocus and empower one's heart. How quickly we forget that only the gospel gives what the law demands. The problem with so many approaches is helping to helping excuse me approaches to helping believers in this area is that they are almost exclusively law-based. And to further complicate the problems, the laws that are given are not God's laws, as Paul gives in chapter 6, but rather constitute helpful advice presented as relevant and practical. But a diet of relevant and practical advice only imposes further expectations and demands as conditions for success. When we fail to live up to these newly imposed expectations and conditions, we fall further into despair. Thus, we come to believe that while the law cannot justify us, it can sanctify us. But the law can do no more in sanctification than it could do in justification. We cannot find strength in the law to finish our journey any more than we could find strength in the law to begin our journey. See Galatians 3. Michael Horton writes, The law can tell us what our gracious Father calls us to do, but it can never animate our hearts or motivate our hands to do it. Only the gospel is the power of God for salvation, God's means of saving us totally. This is what the Corinthians didn't know, what they had lost sight of, and it is what we do not know. The gospel way of holiness is not self-evident. Fallen hearts think that the role of religion is to give people moral instruction to keep us from being dominated by our sinful habits. Mark Galley, author of Chaos and Grace, Discovering and Liberating the, the Work of the Holy Spirit, notes the undeniable fact that many religions, self-help and self-improvement programs and therapies work, to a certain extent. These programs enable people to break addictions, control tempers, repair relationships, and even practice forgiveness. Many social reform groups serve their neighbor. But ultimately, these approaches exhort people to become what they are not, making true and lasting changes impossible. Behavior modification cannot transform a person's heart. Christ, through the gospel, doesn't give us a mere moral makeover. He gives us a whole new identity, one that comes through death and resurrection. Through the gospel, our sin is forgiven, justification, and we are empowered to live unto God, sanctification. The point is this. The only source of life and power for living the Christian life is the gospel. And this is what the Corinthians didn't know. Their ethical failure stemmed from a fundamental problem. They didn't know who they really were in Christ. They were suffering from an identity crisis. Paul knew what the Corinthians needed wasn't moral pep talks to try harder or be better. No. He knew the Corinthians needed a fresh knowledge of the gospel and its daily implications. Paul understood that before the Corinthians could pursue holiness and growth in grace, they had to know that God had first set them apart from the world for himself. This is what you and I need to know. This is what Kate needed to know. We must be reintroduced constantly to the wonder of the gospel so that our practice can be brought into line with our identity. We need constant reminders of our new status before God, sainthood and exhortations to live in light of this gospel reality. 
We are not called to try harder, to be something we are not. We don't become saints by our actions. Rather, we are called to become more and more who we are already in Christ because of God's gracious actions toward us. The glorious truth of the gospel is that even though we struggle, we often fail. We are not struggling from a position of judgment and condemnation. Why? The legal obstacles that might withdraw our new status as saints have been forever resolved. Because of Christ, Paul, as the wretched man in Romans 7, 4, 24, confesses in faith, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. When I read the article and sent it to Mike, my, my, you know, my initial thought, you know, about the story about Kate, you know, because I grew up in that same environment, you know, as younger adults, as younger, whatever, what do they call them now, tweens and teenagers, you know, it was always, you know, we heard lots of stories about don't have sex before marriage, on and on, but nobody really explained why. So it kind of left this curiosity curiosity and door of, well, you know, what's so, you know, like, why? You know, other than it's sin, and then, you know, just even after being married and going through college and very strict Bible college and seeing how many marriages failed of, you know, students that I went to college with, it's just amazing how many just got married so quickly. And then, you know, you found out three, four or five years later they were divorced and just lives were in shambles. Um, just the idea that, you know, yes, is it wrong to have sex before marriage yes but you know taking the time to actually explain to your children and to young people that sex is a beautiful wonderful thing at the right time and then you know be, you know and again i've you know just over the years pastoring talking to so many women that felt like you know they felt like they were sinning even after marriage having sex because it just been ingrained in their heads that, you know, sex is sin, sex is sin, sex is sin. You know, then they get married and, you know, in the back of their mind, they're still thinking this is sin, even though now I'm married and just that conflict that they had. And so, you know, I don't know how well the article really brings that out. I felt like he kind of failed at you, you know, got to buy the book to get the rest of it. I guess, but you know, I don't think he really filled in the gaps there. But you know, my my thought process through this is, you know, that we we really need to teach the young people that, especially in today's environment, um, you know, that that sex is beautiful. It is something wonderful that God wants for us to experience, but it's one of those things we need to wait and do it in God's timing. Um, at the appropriate time, and that, you know, to explain it's not sinful, it's it's wonderful, it's beautiful, but again, in time. I thought we could just look at the biblical text, unless you have a direction you want to go, Mike, because I just didn't really understand how he was connecting the passage to the article. You know, he kept on saying the gospel, but he, he doesn't, he didn't flesh it out. Whoever made this summary of the text. So verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. I'm just doing the verses that he said, which is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20. 
Uh, do, you not, do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, or the idolaters, or the adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindles, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, period, full stop. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Um, and so, uh, we we want to say, I think we want to say two things, or at least I want to say two things, and you guys can disagree with me on this. But, uh, you know, he ends it with, there's therefore no condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus. Of course, we all affirm that. Glory, hallelujah. Yes, you're in Christ Jesus. And we also affirm the fact that because you had because you had premarital sex with your boyfriend one time before you got married, that doesn't mean you're not saved. We're not saying that. That doesn't mean you're not saved. However, you do have to wrestle with what does Paul mean here when he says the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Because I don't think that he actually dealt with the struggle or the... How do I know I'm in Christ if I can't get victory over sexual immorality? Right. Yes, because he kept saying, you know, she was in and out, and you know, she, you know, would turn over a new leaf and get godly, and then she'd fall back into it, and you know, struggled with it. So, right, yeah, and that's that's where I felt like he didn't do a good job of really fleshing it out. And right. So, verse twelve: All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. That's verse number 12. Food is not meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that what he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual or moral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit with you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I, I just need to be upfront and honest. I don't know how that passage connects to the gospel, which connects to the, God, to the article. And that's his central passage. He quoted it throughout, the, throughout his article. Do you think he's using 11, verse 11 as the crux? Such were some of you. Some of you were doing this, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by our spirit, which I think we all would agree that to be washed, sanctified, justified by Christ is done so through the gospel. Right, which I think he, I, you know, I kind of think, I'm, I'm hoping, I mean, I had to make that argument for him. Right, but I but, hope what he's saying is that, you know, such were some of you, so prior to salvation, then it's normal to be involved with different people and have all of that, but then after salvation, there should be a change where you know you're you're not per continuing in those things on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. But I, I I guess I just I feel like his whole introduction of you know Kate that had been you know in this 
you know, legalistic church and environment, I, I don't see how that really fit in with the whole rest of his article kind of idea because, you know, the, the, to me, the way around that is, you know, you teach your children and you teach young people the pros and cons of sex and what the Bible says about it. And that's where I hear you, Doc, that <clears throat> so often within church culture, it has been emphasized the don't do list. Instead of if you believe, if you surrendered, now go live in Christ. I'm not saying the, the don't do's aren't in the Bible, mm -hmm. but yet often those are overemphasized versus living in the Spirit and, and how we can right. be Christ-like through surrendering more to God and listening more instead of trying to do it in our own power and I'm going to do the self-help and fix myself. Right. But I, I think so often, you know, I know all the churches that I've been in until Berean and even under the previous pastor, you, you know, it, certain things are just never really talked about. You know, talked about in generalities, you know, Pastor, you're great at, and I know you've talked to the young people and about sex and in a, you know, somewhat open but guarded way still. But, you know, just, you know, like as a teenager, I, I just always thought, well, sex is bad. You know, don't have sex kind of thing. And then it's like, well, I know it's okay when you get married, but, you know, I don't really know why. Or, you know, why is it bad now but not then? kind of idea and just and you know that was one thing i i tried to change with my two daughters of explaining you know you, you know as they got into adolescence you know you're going to have these feelings you're going to have these biological changes and these are wonderful things that god is instilling within you and this is how you're going to have children and you know this is a glorious thing but you know it's a glorious thing when you do it in the timing that god has for you you know, and you're, you know, you should, you know, wait until God blesses you with a husband and, you know, then thoroughly enjoy it. You know, I told both my daughters when they were engaged, you know, we had conversations and I was like, you know, sex is awesome and, you know, enjoy it. And, you know, really, you know, experience different, you know, things and, you know, it's just... You know, have a have a have a good time and a fun time with it. Um, yeah, I, I think that I mean, if 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 I could sit down with the author, I would say, let's let's read chapter seven. Like, why did you stop there? Because chapter seven presents Paul's solution to the problem. It's called marriage. You, you know, so so yes, there's an expectation for sexual purity, but it's not an everlasting expectation. You don't want to give your way, yourself away because every time you enter into intimacy, you're sharing a portion of who you are with somebody right. else. That yeah. one flesh. Which he says in 6, you know, don't don't be joined with a prostitute. Right. Because you're giving your body to someone right. who's clearly an unbeliever, someone that isn't another dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. But I mean, Paul does say very clearly Flee from sexual immorality. All right. Now, now, I hear what you're saying with the do's and the don'ts, right? But 
Keep your zipper zipped. Keep your top button buttoned. Don't crawl in the back seat of the car. You, you know, don't go over there when he, she's babysitting and you got the whole place to yourself. So yes, with, there's gospel application, right? But the gospel isn't just going to show up in the room and create an indivisible shield between you and the woman. There are boundaries that are appropriate for a, even a gospel-centered Christian to keep, you, you know? I remember during the last month before Pam and I were going to get married, it was getting really hard. We were ready to be intimate, and we were adults. And, and you start rationalizing your mind. We're engaged. We're already there, you, you know? So one of the solutions was boundaries, you know? I wasn't thinking, like, application of the gospel right now. I was thinking about arm's length kind of an idea. You, you know what I mean? Um, we do the same thing after you're married with, you know, other females. Right. Or other people of, op, you know, whatever. If you're a female, man, and whatever. I, you know, it's just that whole idea of, you know, I'm not going to spend time with another, with somebody of the opposite sex because I'm married. And I, I don't want to have the temptation of an emotional attraction to somebody else. Right. I'm not, I'm not plopping down in a pew to where my my right leg hits her left leg and we bump knees for a moment there and I feel something that I shouldn't feel. We keep appropriate boundaries. That I, I just didn't feel like he wrestled with the, temp, the, the, the very pragmatic things that we do in order to, uh, you know, I, I, I don't Google the word T-I-T-S, you know. Because I know what that's going to produce. I don't even want to go down that road. You, you know what I mean? I don't. I don't touch the advertisement because touching the advertisement says give him something else, feed him something else on Google. Right. Those are, are. Go ahead, Mike. And so I'm not against the boundaries. I'm a proponent of boundaries, and I have those locked in in my head, different ones along the way. But I want to make sure that we're not telling people that by us setting our own boundaries, that's what's going to keep us sexually pure either before marriage or after marriage. The, the solution is growing in our relationship in Christ and having the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as we're growing and maturing in that relationship. And it's the Holy Spirit strengthening us to, to stay the course. Okay, so then, and, and leading us to put those boundaries. Correct, and then, but to keep following through. I don't want us to get back to a rules-based legalistic system that Steve was talking about. Right, and, and yet, you know, I'm thinking of a 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old. You know, to what degree are they really filled with the Spirit and empowered by Him? You know, to me, they're, you know, they're, they are still, I'm not saying they can't be, but they're still growing. mature. Right, they're still just somewhat immature and growing in that, trying to figure that out. So, for at that period, it does kind of fall back to the rules of you know. Again, I'll use my daughters. You know, no, you're not going over to his house. No, you're not going to you know go on a date with this guy by yourselves. You know, you know somebody's going to be with you on and on. No, we're not saying go up in the bonus room. And right, watch some you know. That, okay, can you know can Johnny come over? Yes, but you're going to be in the living room the whole time. You know, yes, he can come watch a movie on the TV. No, you can't go to his house because I don't know his parents. I don't know what you're going to do there. You know, he can come here. You know, uh, you know that kind of thing. 
But at the same time, it was, you know, hey, I know you have feelings for him. And that's wonderful. I'm glad that you do. But, you know, Scripture says, you know, to, to abstain from these things, to wait and, you know, uh, you know, learn to, you know, what do you like about him? What don't you like about him? Let's learn different, you know, the personalities of people. And, you know, this is a growing process. You know, so that when you are ready to get married and find somebody to spend the rest of your life with, you know what you're looking for. You know, with the characteristics of a godly person and, you know, things that aren't. And, you know, so there's still that, those guidelines, boundaries, you know, for a younger person. Now, you know, as we mature, then yeah, I mean, you know, I would say, you know, it's not like I have somebody setting rules for me. Other, other than employment guidelines, but, you know, and even in a workplace, you know, the military has rules. Yeah, lots of rules. You know, what, what they can and can't do. Huh? Doesn't stop it, though. No, but, you know, it's, it, it's, it, they're there for a reason. Right. You know, and when they are broken, you know, Article 15s or different things happen as a result of it. You know, they don't just turn a blind eye and let it go. But, but I agree, Mike. You know, the goal should be, and again, even as you're teaching your children and teenagers, working with them in classes, Paul and Brian, you know, the goal is that you're, you know, we do this because we love God. We do this because this is what God says is best for us. You know, and that is our goal of glorifying him. You know, is God glorified when we have premarital sex? No, he's not. You know, because that hinders us, that hurts us. You know, and that's going to be a scar that you carry the rest of your life. You know, so we are striving to instill within them the the thoughts of Scripture and the Gospel of, you know, to live a, a, a victorious life, a life of blessing as much as possible. You know, these are the things that we need yep. to instill. So lots of questions left unanswered by the article. Yeah, because it's a very, very hard topic, is how do you navigate the gospel-centered application of sexual uh, purity and the pragmatic things that are necessary, often necessary, to ensure that I don't cross the line? Because, you know, Mike, I don't care how much I'm pursuing Christ and how spirit felt I felt on Sunday, if I'm with that 17-year-old girl that I'm madly in love with and we're sitting on a couch together, you know, the last thing on my mind at that moment is... In fact, Christ is being exalted in my life. I mean that that that, and that's and that's the way God made it. I mean th- that desire that you have is there because God put it in there, and the, and it's supposed to result in a desire to get married and then be fruitful and multiply. So so yeah, you've got to abstain for a season, but it's not an indefinite ab- abstaining, is what we'd want to say. You know, there should be a mark on the wall. There should be a target there. There should be a goal. You know, you can't stay sexually pure for an indefinite period of time. Goodness, yesterday the Pope said that he's contemplating removing the restriction for the priest. Yes, publicly said that. Because, why? Because we have a bunch of priests, right, who have been trying to abstaining and they're failing miserably. All right, well, we're out of time for our podcast. Uh, We should have started earlier. Thanks for listening. We'll re-attack this uh, topic in the future. Have a good day.